Hello everyone and welcome to CRAMSurge, clinical research appraisal and methodology for surgical trainees, where we pick a paper fresh from the press on a hot general surgical topic. We review it for you, we present it for you, we critique its methodology for you and provide top-of-the-field expert opinions and teaching on research appraisal and methodology. My name is Gio Perrin and together with Professor Sababella Subramanian, Adam Haig, Ben Wood and Josh Lau, we bring you Crown Surge from the wonderful region of the Yorkshire and the Humber. So today we are going to talk about a paper recently published in uh, JAMA Surge, Effect of Gastric Bypass versus Best Medical Treatment on Early Stage Chronic Kidney Disease in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes and Obesity, a randomized clinical trial. Uh, this is followed by a teaching session by Professor Sababal Subramanian on hazard ratio, continuing on our previous sessions on measures of risk. What we're going to talk about today is a paper from JAMA Surgery, which uh, was published this month. On, you can see the title there, The Effect of Gastric Bypass Versus Best Medical Treatment on End Stage, Early Stage sorry, uh, Chronic Kidney Disease in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. This is a randomized clinical trial in a high impact factor journal. It's last impact factor was 10 and it's up from the previous year, 8.5. So it's a rising impact factor journal. RCT is the basis for level one element evidence and uh, this is uh, clinically relevant in the current environment of obesity and diabetes. So I'll hand over to Maria now to talk about the aims of the presentation. Thanks Ben. So just a bit of background about this paper. Um, so we just put up the PICO. P stands for the problem or the population and this is patients with type 2 diabetes who also have uh, chronic kidney disease and a BMI of over 30 but under th under 35. The interventions obviously are ruin why gastric bypass and this is being compared with best medical treatments that would be something like metformin or citagliptin and the outcome hopefully would be remission of the chronic kidney disease. So the problem is that type 2 diabetes affects 422 million people worldwide Chronic kidney disease is a major factor in mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes. By reversing the microalbuminemia, you preserve the kidney function and therefore help these patients. We already know that Ruin-Y bypass is shown to cause remission of type 2 diabetes and therefore a gold standard operation. And so we, this trial looks at the comparison of Ruin-Y against best medical treatment and hopes that the ruin why would be more effective than best medical treatment. So just to go through the methods of the paper and the study design, it's a randomised controlled trial, as the paper states it's a superiority trial. It was done in a single institution in Sao Paulo in Brazil called Hospital Alamao Oswaldo Cruz. It's, uh, the surgery was all done by a single surgeon and he is the first author of the paper. This is the this particular paper is the first two year results of a five year trial and the dates of that from the 1st of April 2013 to the 31st of the 3rd 2016. Every, everyone in the trial was randomized electronically and they use stratified block randomization and they've done consult reporting to ensure they've got high standards. The endpoint of this paper is 24 months as I've mentioned, but the overall paper is five. The overall trial is five years. The primary outcomes uh, was remission of microalbuminuria, defined as a UACR level of less than 30 at 24 months. And the secondary outcomes, there are quite a few, um, CKD remission rate, absolute change in use ACR, metabolic control, microvascular complications, quality of life and safety. 
there's actually uh, 11 in total and we won't have time to touch on all of them I don't think. So back to Maria just to talk about chronic kidney, kidney disease. So if anyone's um, like me and not been to medical school for a while I just thought I'd put this up. So um, patients with an EGFR of more than 90 are, are normal so that'd be someone like myself however someone with an EGFR of less than 15 is the sort of patient that you would be having uh, dialysis. So the patients in this study, we've, if you can appreciate the blue blocks that we've circled, they're the sort, of, they're the patients that are in that group there that have been included um, in this trial. So obviously, um, the uh, albumin to creatinine ratios are more than thirty, so they've got a quite a lot of uh, um, morbidity there with regards to their kidneys. Okay, back over to Ben. So this is the um, consult diagram for eligibility and the randomization of the patients. You can see that they assessed 343 patients. Um, I've highlighted there that they've excluded 243, which is quite a large number. They've managed to get in uh, 100 patients and randomize them, 49 to best medical treatment, and 51 to rural wide gastric bypass. And you can see that some patients dropped out there. But overall, they've analysed the data on intention to treat. So 49 are analysed in one group and 51 were analysed in the other group. They have actually analysed um, twice because they've um, also done a complete case analysis for those patients that withdrew in certain groups. Um, so the safety population was 46 in each group. Now, in the paper, it actually says that results are specified as 43 and despite the fact that Maria and I have read this paper multiple times we can't quite get to the bottom of how they've got to 43 in each group. There's three supplementary um, uh, pieces of data that come with the paper online and they are quite extensive and even that doesn't seem to specify it. But we're going on the intention to treat analysis based on that number at the bottom of 49 and 51. So back to Maria to start talking about the results. So this study did achieve its primary outcome, which was that patients with a rear and wide gastric bypass compared to those with best medical treatment um, did um, have uh, resolved their chronic kidney disease. And obviously this was uh, demonstrated with a risk difference, as you can see there. Sorry, I know it's a bit of a busy slide. However, they also did an intention to treat analysis uh, for albumin urea remission and Ruin Y obviously again showed that it was uh, more superior than a best medical treatment in patients um, in this trial. However, they did mention the secondary endpoints, but they wanted to analyse these at five years as well. So you need to take these with a bit of caution. So the baseline com uh, comparison was a two-tailed unpaired T-test or a fish zigzag and a vicious exact test as well. There was a power calculation included with a 1.7% significance level. They did a Bonferroni corrected level for the three assessments that are going to be at 12 months, 24 months, which is this study, and then 60 months, which isn't out yet, using the assumption of a five-fold difference between the best medical treatment group and the Ruin Y group for the primary outcome. They use this taking into account um, previous studies um, in the proportion of patients they, they expected to be into remission. Uh, they also took into account, they thought that about 20% of the patients would be lost to follow-up. 
The binary and categorical variables were displayed in percentages or proportions, and therefore the risk difference ratios were calculated with a 95% confidence interval. Um, and that was the risk difference, obviously, between the Roux and Y gastric bypass and the best medical treatment as seen there. The intention to treat analysis, I was a little bit confused uh, by this at the start. Um, so I tried to break this down. It's basically they've included all the patients in the trial, even if they didn't have the treatment. So this is to allow for a less biased um, conclusion regarding the effectiveness of this intervention and therefore preserving the benefits of randomization. So basically, it does mean that sometimes, this is my understanding of it, it underestimates the effectiveness of the intervention, but is more realistic to a population like we'd see every day at work. And the safety outcomes, however, these were only calculated in the patients who actually received the allocated treatment. And then the there was mixed multi-level effects regression models and logistic regression models used um, to bring uh, skewed data back to a more normal level for analysis. I think they did um, highlight the points that they wanted to in the results quite clearly. Um, I know it was a bit of a confusing way of the number of patients and things, but the results, uh, they did try and highlight the ones that they wanted to talk about quite well. And obviously the primary outcome was achieved. So this is the table of uh, some of the results. There's quite a lot of results. And as you heard from Maria, it's quite statistically heavy, this paper. Um, I've just highlighted a section of one table because there's so many results. And I thought this would be useful. So this first blue band goes around the primary outcome. And you've got the top <coughs> is the intention to treat analysis and percentage. And the second row is the complete case analysis. So that's what actually happened to the patients rather than the intention to treat. So the first column is best medical treatment. Then you've got Ruan Y gastric bypass as a column. And then you've got the difference. So as you can see, in the attention to treat analysis, 82% of the Ruan Y gastric bypasses achieved the primary outcome, which is a reduction of the of the Alvin aggression ratio, whereas the best medical treatment, 54. So these people did improve their ratio, but not as well as the Ruan Y gastric bypass. And if you look at the second line, so the complete case analysis, confusingly, this is not a percentage. This is a raw number and a percentage in a background so in the brackets. So 56 percent in that bracket um, of the patients achieved the primary outcome and 84 percent in the rural and wide gastric bypass. So these results are actually quite similar between the intention to treat and the complete case analysis, which is a good thing. So a couple of other results I just wanted to highlight. So if you look at the HbA1c, you can see that the... Uh, both groups uh, have got good result, good improvement there. Um, and the Ruan Y gastric bypass, the patient's got an HbA1c of 6.18, which is excellent. And if you look down at the BMI, the best medical treatment patients, bear in mind that these started between 30 and 35, have gone down to 31. And the Ruan Y gastric bypass, again, started at 30, 35, gone down to 24, which um, is impressive results. Further results, and I feel that this is important, they've included um, the SF36 short form health survey, which has been validated in multiple languages around the world, which is patient validated um, opinions of their results. And this showed that the Ruan Y gastric bypass patients had a greater improvement according to themselves in their own general health, emotional well-being, physical health and vitality. So they felt that they were better from it, which is, I think, an important patient centered outcome. 
There are many more results, and that's just a few highlighted from this paper because we've got limited time. So I'll pass back to Maria now to talk about the adverse events. So obviously the reason why we do studies is to try and improve patients um, and also to make sure that um, we're using safe things on our patients. And obviously it's important to declare if there are any serious outcomes in any of these trials that we're doing and they did disclose that they had some serious events six patients they were all listed which I think was really good but they also stated there were no deaths no episodes of serious hypoglycemia malnutrition or excessive weight loss which were all very good and um, so Ben's just going to have a chat to you about um, some more points about limitations. Brilliant thank you Maria so the paper actually goes through a long list of self-reported limitations, which, which is very good. Um, they report that the primary outcome is based on a single first morning urine sample. And while this could have led to misclassification, which would obviously throw the whole trial into disarray, they did use computer randomization using stratified blocks to ensure that any misclassification was well balanced between the groups. So hopefully it should be valid. Uh, obviously, other uh, self-reported limitations are this is obviously an open label design. Um, it's a very short follow up of only 24 months and bariatric surgery. We know that it's got we need to follow up for longer, but it's already part of a five year trial. There were minor baseline differences in the lipid lowering drug uses. They've also reported that there was a, um, a race slash ethnicity difference between the groups that was statistically different, um, but they've deemed that it was not Clinic, uh, clinically relevant. Um, as far as adverse events were concerned, we've already talked about these. Um, they didn't pre-specify the type and frequency of, of the anticipated adverse events. They've only sort of realised what would happen after the trial, and that might be useful in a future trial. And then, of course, the heterogeneity of the trial. Comparing a medical and surgical treatment is always going to be difficult, um, but they've done pretty well in this. So other uh, things that they do mention in passing, so the MDT and guidelines, um, this is based very much on a big MDT and uh, specific guidelines. So if medical and surgical practices worldwide are not standardised at all to the international guidelines, they wouldn't be able to re reproduce this. Um, they haven't really mentioned the physiological changes of metabolic surgery and why this uh, might happen. It's obviously it's incompletely understood. There are some theories. And if you go to the um, addendas, as, as I've mentioned before, there is some documentation about that for anyone that's interested. They do mention that the authors are funded by Johnson Johnson Brazil and they've also funded the trial which uh, is obviously a, a point of bias. The other thing that is quite important that they actually don't mention is that uh, of the 100 patients that were included, 21 were minor failures of the inclusion criteria that were permitted as part of the trial as per the principal investigator. The principal investigator is also the surgeon who is also the first author, which is a fifth of the trial um, patients. Obviously, this did go through the ethics committee and it was re approved retrospectively. And they are minor uh, deviances from the protocol, but they are still deviances. So over to conclusion, back to Maria. So um, just to conclude, we're just having a look at um, the table that you can see where it's quite colourful. So it's um, 
I'm just going to go through the good and bad points of the tri of the paper. Um, so the good points we thought it was a single surgeon and it was the same operation done throughout the uh, throughout the study. Obviously, the room wide gastric bypass. However, it was only one centre. It was a relatively small sample size, and also, as Ben's just stated, not all the patients met the inclusion criteria to start with, um, and had to be approved otherwise. Um, so you have to question what's the point in having an inclusion criteria. Um, and then obviously it's shown that a real why gastric bypass is uh, very valuable in this patient set. They have type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. So they're not they're not the easiest patients either because they've got lots of comorbidities. And it's so it's useful in clinical practice and therefore probably very relevant. Um, however, we found it quite hard to find um, the list of medications patients were on and we had to delve into like extra appendixes and things. Um, so I think that could be a bit of an issue. Um, and then obviously newer anti-diabetic medications may arrive on the market and obviously these may um, cause um, a better lowering in the HbA1c or the weight or in the BMI and things may be more economically viable than a room wide gastric bypass and this is something that um, just to keep an, an eye out um, in the future but you know this study did did show its primary endpoints and was very good in many ways however we've graded it three overall just because of some of the things like not all the patients meeting the inclusion criteria and some of these things aren't really easily found upon until you really delve into some of the um, background of this paper, like the appendixes and stuff, which is something that I personally don't always do when I read a paper, which maybe I should do more of. So thank you very much for listening. We've done a couple of tutorials on measures of risk. So there's a part one and part two. And uh, I suspect some of you may not have heard the part one and part two, but it's on the Internet. And uh, I'd suggest that when you have uh, some time, um, we look look up those um, lectures. Um, in part three, we're going to focus mainly on what we call time to event data and hazard ratio. Hazard ratio as a measure of risk. Uh, I will, however, refresh uh, our memories uh, of what we discussed in part one and part two. I will go through it fairly um, quickly, so we're not. Um, uh, dwelling on what we've already covered um, for too long. So there we go. Right. So what have we learned before? So I'll give you a little scenario here. So you're looking at um, a specific cancer where you're comparing two treatments, a new treatment, which is in the top row and a standard treatment in the bottom row. And you've got 100 patients in each group. And you find that five years, the cancer-specific survival with the standard treatment is only 50%. 50 out of 100 have survived five years. While in the new treatment, uh, you've got 75 people that have survived. So that's the data you've got at the end of a trial comparing um, two different treatments for a specific cancer. And the primary outcome being five-year cancer-specific survival. Right. So odds ratios. If you're going to use odds ratios, uh, then what does that mean is the ratio of odds, uh, ratio of two odds. One is the odds of survival of the new treatment to the odds of survival in the standard arm. So the standard formula for odds ratio is AD or BC. A, B, C, D are the um, names of the cells in this two by two table. 
and um, you do the calculation and you come up with an odds ratio of three. Just keep in mind that odds ratio provides you with an inflated estimate of risk. It's not a, a measure that uh, we would advise that you use in a cohort study or a randomized controlled trial. And ideally, you use uh, odds ratios uh, where there's no other option, i.e. a case control study. Right. The next measure of risk that we talked about before is relative risk, which is simply the ratio of two probabilities. One is the prob probability of surviving in the new um, treatment group, and the second is the probability of surviving in the standard arm. So the probability of surviving in one group is simply A over A plus B, and the probability of surviving in the standard treatment arm is C over C plus D. So essentially, uh, that's a formula for relative risk, and you get a value of 1.5. So relative risk is a uh, very useful measure of risk. It's very intuitive, easy to understand, and you can simply translate it as 1.5 times increased risk. The next measure of risk um, we talked about in part two um, uh, is what we call the attributable risk. It's also known as the risk difference. So it's AR or RD. So that simply is the increased survival you get that you can attribute to the new treatment. In other words, it's just a difference in the probabilities. So you, go, you get uh, A over A plus B, that's the probability of surviving in the new treatment arm, and C over C plus D, that's the probability of surviving in the standard arm. You subtract the two probabilities, you get uh, what we call the risk difference or the attributable risk. Okay. So, uh, carrying on with the same example, we also discussed um, what we call relative risk reduction, which essentially is the reduction in death in the new uh, treatment arm relative to the standard arm. So, essentially what you're saying is you want to look at the um, event rate in the control group, which is a standard treatment, event rate in the experimental group, which is a new treatment. You subtract them and you see what is it relative to the control arm. And so if you do the calculations here, you get a, a relative risk reduction of 50%. And uh, the next uh, parameter is absolute risk reduction, which simply is the difference, is the absolute difference in the death rates. So it's just the uh, difference between the uh, event rate in the control group and the event rate in the experimental group. Now you will see that the absolute risk reduction um, is a very similar concept to attributable risk. Or risk difference. If you go back one slide, you will know we, we talked about attributable risk. So that is very similar to absolute risk reduction. It's just that attributable risk is used more often in epidemiology, where you're attributing the risk of a particular risk factor like smoking to say lung cancer, for example, while absolute risk reduction is used in clinical trials where you're looking at the effects of um, interventions on clinical outcomes in patients with a particular disease like cancer. We then talked about number needed to treat, which is essentially the reciprocal of the absolute risk reduction. And that's a useful statistic to keep in mind because it gives you the number of patients that need to be treated with a, with a, with a, with a special, uh, with the new treatment for 1% to benefit. So when we say that NNT is the reciprocal of absolute risk reduction, we mean in this particular example, it is one over 25%, uh, which is four. So you're saying that four patients need to and be given the new treatment for one person to see a benefit at five years. And usually um, an NNT of four in cancer trials is a pretty significant number. Right, so we then move on to 
um, explaining time to event data. So um, we have talked about a number of measures of risk and we've considered uh, uh, outcomes which may or may not be related to um, timing. So for some outcomes, you could ignore the time. The timing is not very important. And uh, sometimes you could specify that the outcome has to happen within a certain time period and not worry too much about when in that time period the outcome has occurred. And the examples would be things like wound infection after surgery, an astomotic leak, flap failure, reoperation for bleeding, 30-day mortality, and so on. So you can see here that um, you probably have come across studies that use 30-day mortality as a primary outcome. And uh, the question there is, you know, how many patients have died within 30 days after surgery? And we're not really interested, neither the surgeon nor the patient is bothered about whether the death happened on day five or day 11 or day 19. So in these kinds of events, um, relative risk, odd ratios, um, risk reductions and so on are pretty um, uh, sufficient and useful. However, there are some events and outcomes where the time is really important. The time should not be uh, ignored. And examples of those would be survival and recurrence rates, um, mainly in cancer trials. And uh, uh, we go back to the same example, the hypothetical example, where we look at cancer-specific survival in this particular cancer, uh, where patients have been subjected to two different treatments. And uh, I first showed you data on five-year survival, but here in this um, figure table, you've got two-year survival, five-year survival, and 10-year survival. And depending on which um, time point you choose, you will find that your relative risk or any other measure of risk will change over time. So it would be 1.1 at two years, 1.55 years, and one at 10 years. Or eventually, you know, everyone of us will die. So uh, you could argue that if you have a very long uh, um, endpoint um, for survival, then the relative risk will become one um, in whichever trial setting you look at. So therefore, for these outcomes like survival, the measures of risk that we've discussed so far, relative risk, odds ratios, and so on, have significant limitations. Right. So let's just think of an example. Uh, another uh, but similar example. Let's say you're studying um, an event such as survival, and let's talk about disease-specific survival after um, pancreatic surgery in a cohort of patients that you've recruited over three years. So you're interested in survival uh, after pancreatic surgery. Now, you've got to keep in mind that the survival incorporates the event and the time of occurrence. So you want to know whether they've survived or not, and you also really want to know how long they survived for. So there are two components to this, um, to this kind of data and this kind of analysis. You could either just focus on the survival as a binary outcome and think of it as whether people have survived or not survived and, and consider a fixed time point. So for example, you could say 20% survived five for um, two years. So you're not really saying what happened um, after two years for the 20%, did they live on forever? Were they cured? Or were they all dead by three years? At the same time, you're not saying much at all about the 80% that died by the second year, whether they died as a result of complications or surgery within the month, 
or whether they all died towards the end of two, uh, towards the end of the first year. So there, there are significant problems. So this bin binary way of looking at survival does not really capture changes over time. The other way is a more quantitative uh, way, which, which appears sort of logical. And you'd say, fine, I'd want to look at the length of survival in every one of my patients that I've recruited over three years. I'd then calculate the average survival and give you the median and the range. A median and the range more than the mean and standard deviation because survival in these kinds of scenarios is almost always a non-parametric data set. And if you have any questions about it, um, let me know at the end. So what's the problem with this? The big problem with this, a practical problem, is what we call censoring. Now, you might um, collect patients over a three-year period, and then you might study them for um, another two years. But it may be that a significant number of patients have not died at the end of your five-year study. And then you don't know how long they would have survived for because you've got to you finish the study at some point. Or it could be that another event not of your interest has come into play. What does that mean? So you said, or I said, that you're interested in disease-specific survival. So you're interested in patients who die of pancreatic cancer. What happens to patients who either migrated or who got a chest infection or a PE? So what do you do to those patients? So if they have a PE at three years, uh, which if you assume is completely unrelated to the pancreatic cancer, you know, it could be, and that's a difficult sort of debate. Um, so you um, are not able to say that the patient died of pancreatic cancer at three years. You're just able to say that the patient died of some other cause or, or of some cause. So these are problems uh, if you look at survival data purely from a quantitative perspective. Um, in other words, you're having to censor uh, the data of some of these patients if they've not had the outcome of interest. Right. There are some other practical issues with time to event data. So um, as you would probably realize, the patients do not um, get recruited all in one go. So if you start the study now, you're not get, going to get all of your 50 patients uh, within the next month. They will be recruited over a long time period. And we're saying three years. And therefore, their start times will be different. But you're going to finish the study at five years. So you've said probably that uh, your last patient will have a two years follow up. But your first patient was going to have five years follow-up. So the length of follow-up will be different um, for uh, the entire group. The other um, practical issues are that we do make some significant assumptions when we start analyzing time-to-event data or survival data. And uh, these, these are the assumptions. The first is that we have to assume, or we do assume in a lot of these studies, that the prognosis does not change over the time of recruitment. So uh, if you're recruiting patients over three years, patients having pancreatic surgery, uh, you are assuming that your procedure, the treatment providers don't really change. And the patients um, entering into the trial early on are very similar to the patients entering into the trial later on in, as far as prognosis is concerned. So that sometimes can be a big assumption to make and may not always be valid. The other big assumption is that you assume that the patients who are censored are very similar, primarily in terms of prognosis, to patients who are not censored. So uh, um, again, censoring can happen because of all sorts of reasons um, related to the cancer, unrelated to the cancer, and that 
uh, those reasons of those confounding variables might themselves affect the prognosis. So again, that's a big leap of faith to make, uh, and that's a significant assumption you need to bear in mind. Okay, so now that we've discussed a little bit about time to event data or survival data, uh, let's look into the measure of risk uh, that we can use for these um, data sets. So hazard ratio is the measure of risk that we're going to talk about, and that's used in time to event data. Right, so what does that mean? So as the word says, hazard ratio is a ratio of two hazard rates. So what is a hazard rate then? The hazard rate is simply the rate of event, i.e. death here, in a cohort in a unit of time. Now this is a very simplistic description of hazard rate. So you want to calculate the rate of event in two groups, and then you want to calculate the ratio of the rates of events in two groups. So it's very similar in concept to the relative risk. Now here say, um, survival curve, and we will talk about survival curves and survival analysis in a separate tutorial, but you've got um, two groups of patients with breast cancer, and we're plotting time to death or metastasis. So that's a complex outcome, death or metastasis in months, and we're plotting the survival. And the two groups of patients are those um, without lymph node involvement in blue and those with lymph node metastasis in red. And you can see how the survival obviously um, drops as you go down the periods. And you can also see how the lines are diverging from each other. Now, if you wanted to use a simplistic measure like relative risk, it just won't work because in the first year, the relative risk uh, of death in the two groups would be one. In 10 years time, it'll be hugely different. It will be almost two. And with lots of other relative risk measures in between, depending on what time period you choose. So uh, you can see very clearly that relative risk or odds ratios or absolute risk reductions and numbers needed to treat will all depend on your endpoint. Is it one year, two years, five years, or 10 years? And that is what uh, the hazard rate tries to capture, the hazard rate and the hazard ratio. Now, the precise calculations of hazard ratio um, it's a bit complicated, especially when you have what we call censoring. Um, censoring. So we won't go into the details of calculating the hazard ratio. As opposed to relative risk and odds ratio, which um, if you've seen uh, the first and second tutorials are relatively straightforward. Right. So um, hazard ratio, like I said, is um, very similar in concept to relative risk. And it's clearly preferred in analysis of time to event data or survival data because it is independent of predefined times or endpoints. There are some problems as with all of these measures of risk. The first problem is that just like relative risk, it does not really reflect absolute values. Um, it's just a ratio. It could be two, it could be five, it could be six. It doesn't really tell you what's the survival uh, in one group and, and what's the survival in the other group. So in other words, it does not by itself provide information on the average survival in both of these groups. And it is always advisable to use the uh, or describe the average time to event or the median time to event in the groups. And you could calculate what they call median ratio alongside the description of the hazard ratio. Hazard ratio is a basis for, um, you might have heard of this uh, phrase, Cox proportional hazard analysis and other survival analysis. 
So uh, it's important to try and uh, get to grips with just the concept. You don't um, really need to calculate hazard ratio. Um, you can get um, software to do it. So that's the end of the, the tutorial. So I hope um, I've emphasized enough that time to event is quite important for some outcome measures, such as survival and recurrence. And the moment you start, uh, you introduce time to event, and not just the event, uh, you, you're introducing complexities. Because one, you've got two parameters now, the event and the time taken. And then invariably in clinical studies, you will have significant censoring. So hazard ratio is a good measure of risk for comparing time to event data. And uh, as long as you remember that um, uh, conceptually, it tells, it gives you the same information as, as relative risk, and that will be fine. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. Until next time, keep running your life with our surgical podcast. <laughs>